Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to look at the first 36 verses. But Matthew 24 and 25 is kind of the last long teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew. There are five really long sections where Jesus hunkers down and gives some extended teaching. And this is the last one. Uh, And so we're going to kind of cover it in two parts. This morning we're going to cover the first 36 verses of Matthew 24, and then next week we'll look at the rest of 24 into chapter 25. So as we always do, I'm going to begin by reading the scripture and invite you to turn there, read along with me. If you need a Bible, we'd love to give you one in the back. Matthew 24, starting in verse 1, says this. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. Because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here's the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. 
Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Jesus, this is your word. Would you help us this morning to understand it? Help us to understand why you spoke these words and what good they are for us today. Jesus, there are things in this passage that are misunderstood. There are minor things that are mistaught by others to be major things. There are are things that are taken out of this passage that are taken out of context, and they're used to cause fear in people's lives. But Jesus, we want to know why you gave us this in your word. We want to be encouraged to draw closer to you because of these words. And we believe because all of your word is inspired by you to be useful to us. We believe even these words can can lead us into a closer and deeper relationship with you. But we need your help. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us as we walk through this passage this morning. We look to you and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there are many stories of endurance we could tell. I thought about trying to get the story of the first uh, ancient Greek soldier to run what they thought was about 25 miles in Greece, warning about uh, a coming attack, and that's where we get the marathon race today because he ran close to 26.2 miles, and they think over a couple-day period, this particular soldier ran a total of 150 miles back and forth between the battlefields and headquarters, and legend has it that On his last trip, he fell down and died. I thought about telling the story uh, from the movie a couple years ago of Louis Zamperini, whose plane was shot down. I think at the time, at least, he had the longest uh, extended period where he was rescued, living on a life raft, 46 days, finally to wash up on shore in enemy territory, to then be tortured and a prisoner of war. And then years later, he would come actually to know Christ. There are many stories of endurance we could tell. And I think what's interesting about Matthew 24 and these first 36 verses is that uh, verse 13 seems to be the glue that holds this thing together where Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There are many things in this passage that we could highlight and try to make central. But the truth is, Jesus doesn't answer the disciples' questions in the ways that they would like. He does the same thing in Acts chapter one. Is this the time? They're concerned with times and dates, when and how. And instead of answering when he's going to come, Jesus is actually answering, how are you to wait until I come? How is your life going to look until I return? The main point this morning we're gonna see from these 36 verses is endure this broken world in hope because Jesus will come again. We can endure in hope because Jesus will, in fact, come again. We're going to see the need for endurance, the work that we do in endurance, and then the hope of endurance as we walk through this. But to start at the beginning, the disciples point out the temple, and they ask Jesus some specific questions after Jesus says, hey, this whole temple thing, which is the second temple, it was already destroyed once in the Old Testament timeline, it was rebuilt, 
not near as glorious as the first one. And now Jesus is telling them, not one stone is going to be left standing on another. This temple is going to be destroyed. So spoiler alert, that happened in about A.D. 70. There was a massive war between 66 and 70 A.D., and the temple was destroyed. But notice what the disciples ask. They ask, when? And what is the sign about these things, the temple being destroyed, and about your coming. And then they ask also about the end of the age. They kind of wrap all these things up together. They assume that the, the destruction of the temple would be such a momentous occasion that must be a sign of the end times, that the world is coming to an end. And what that does is it actually allows Jesus to give an answer that wraps all these things up together. So what he does in this passage, and the reason it can be confusing, is because Jesus will jump back and forth between things that the disciples are going to experience in their lifetime in the first century, and some things that have not yet been fulfilled even in our lifetime. And part of what Jesus is trying to do is to say, the temple's destruction will be momentous. It will be a history-marking event. It will cause you in Jerusalem to spread to the hills, the warning that he gives you. You'll see the city surrounded by armies and you will run. That happened. That was the dispersion. And we read about that in Acts. We read 1 Peter even write to believers who were sent away because of their persecution for being followers of Jesus. We know that that happened in history. But part of what Jesus is saying, to, to quote one of the commentators, it's Jesus' task in this passage to expand their horizons, to make them realize that a continuation of their faith without the temple until the close of the age is possible. And that the end of the temple is not necessarily the end of all things, but I think Jesus says in this passage, it is the beginning of the end. So what do we have in common with these first century followers of Jesus? Jesus seems to be telling them that they will be living in the end times. And 2,000 years later, so are we. The end times are not something to be feared. It's not a period that's yet to come. And you'll see people often say, well, look at all the wars. This must be, this must be close to the end. And Jesus precisely says the opposite. Hey, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Those things must happen before the end. We can't act like our age is somehow incredibly worse than all the ages that have come before. Go read history. There have been wars and rumors of wars since these words were spoken by our Lord. So what we see Jesus describing in these verses is the beginning of the end. Now, don't miss it. There will be an end. This age that we're living in now will come to an end. The world as we know it will not continue like this forever in a downward spiral. Jesus is showing them that some of these things he describes will happen during this generation. We see him say that. This generation will not pass away before some of these things. They will experience the beginning of the end. But... Jesus does not describe for them exactly precise timelines. Jesus does not want them to spend their time on predictions and calculations. Instead, Jesus answers another question. How should you wait? Yes, the end is coming. What, what is that going to look like for you? How should you wait for the end? How should you wait for me to come back? So the first thing we see this morning is the need for endurance. 
the need for endurance. I think, first of all, you can't read this passage and escape the pain of Christ's world. That's the first need for endurance, the pain of Christ's world. Look at the way he describes in verses six and eight, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. He talks about lawlessness and love growing cold. The temple, the center of their religious uh, legacy will be destroyed. There will be an attack on their holy city. In verses 21 and 29, he references great distress like never before and like will never come again. Then he, he talks about this phrase. These are the beginning of the labor pains. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter eight. And he says that these labor pains and this distress will mark the time from his resurrection, from the, this generation, there will be the beginning of the labor pains and those pains will not end until he returns again. And all of that time in between his first coming and his second coming are what we would describe as the last days. We should expect pain in this world between Christ's comings. The pain of Christ's world. Things are not going to be as they should. Now expecting pain doesn't mean the pain's gonna go away, but it can help us prepare for it. God has a pattern all throughout scripture of saving his people, not out of suffering, but through suffering. Think about the way that he saved Abraham, leading him to the place where he would eventually plant him, but still not even seeing the promised land. And Abraham went through some really hard times, having to save his family member Lot, having to journey through some foreign kingdoms. Think about the people in the book of Exodus. God certainly didn't save them out of suffering. He saved them out of slavery, and then they went right back into more suffering as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Think about Job and the suffering he endured. We could go all through Israel's history in the Old Testament and find a pattern of God saving his people, not out of suffering, but through it. This is the need for endurance because we will live in a world that is painful, that does not work the way it should. But then the other need for endurance is the purifying of Christ's followers. And I think there's a purification that happens in two ways. The first is his warning about deception from false prophets and messiahs. In times of desperation, it is easy to be deceived because we are looking for a solution. And he says a few different times, false messiahs and false prophets are going to come. Do not listen to them. These false saviors will take this time of pain and suffering as a golden opportunity to lead people astray. They'll promise deliverance where there is none. They'll promise safety and prosperity. They'll promise victory. They'll preach and proclaim compromise so that we can make ourselves a little more at home in this world, which Jesus has just told us is passing away. Don't be fooled by them, Jesus says. Don't be fooled by them. The temptation of a false savior is strong. And it will be strong as we live in such a broken world because we will want something to pacify us, something to give us hope, something to tell us, surely this is gonna come to an end, right? We'll look for a leader that can defeat evil here and now instead of waiting for the one that's gonna come in the end and decisively finish the battle between good and evil. But we're also gonna be purified through persecution. Jesus says that persecution is coming. 
They will persecute you. They will even take your very life, which is the fate of most of his first disciples. This will purify us personally as we're forced to ask if we really believe the things we confess in times of peace. It's so much easier in times of peace to sing and to pray, to open this word, and to say we believe in Jesus. But when our lives are threatened, what happens then? And his own followers experience that. We have the story of Peter denying Jesus because he sees Jesus arrested, being beaten, uh, being prepared to be crucified. And the little girl says, wait a minute, you're one of his followers. Peter says, not me. Nope, I don't want to be associated with him right now because if that's what's happening to him, it's coming for me too if I associate myself with him. So no, 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 no. And Jesus beautifully restores Peter after this. And Peter goes on to become a great influence in the early church. James chapter one talks like this. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking nothing persecution will purify our personal hope and it'll also purify the body of christ because people who are nominal cultural christians will fall away from the faith when things become difficult there's a pain in christ's world and there will be a purifying of christ's people not in the last days that are going to come in the last days that we're living in, that these first century disciples lived in, these things will be happening. We see the need for endurance, but we also see the hope of our endurance. The hope of our endurance. We see the proclamation of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom will be proclaimed globally. Christ promises that. That's something we pray for in our missions moment. We pray scriptures that point to that. We pray for people groups. In fact, uh, in the month of March, we've ordered some prayer guides that'll take you for 30 days through 30 countries that need gospel witness. And it'll give you some statistics about those countries and what it's like to be a Christian there and how few people are believers there and ways you specifically can pray for those countries because Jesus says the gospel will be proclaimed to those places. That's a guarantee. But there's also a tension in that because we're proclaiming a kingdom of a victorious Jesus, but we're proclaiming it in a world that we just said is incredibly painful. There's tension as we do that. We're proclaiming a living Lord in the midst of a dying world. In verse 24, 14, it talks about global proclamation. In, verse, in chapter 24, verse 22, it talks about the age of dis distress and how it seems like everything's going to fall apart. Nothing will last. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. That's how painful the world's gonna be. And he says, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. I think this is an application of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are the salt of the earth. Salt in the first century was not just flavor, it was a way to preserve. And part of what Jesus is saying is by your faithful presence in the world, the world itself will be preserved from total destruction because you're present within it. Lawlessness is running rampant, but I know I have a remnant of people that are close to me that have received my love that will continue to be the salt of the earth. And in the midst of all this, we might ask, if, if there's a God, then why are things so bad? Jesus actually gives the counter argument right here. 
The reality is, if there was no God, things would be much worse. We see that the need, the hope for our endurance is that the kingdom will be proclaimed. And that by our very presence in the world, proclaiming the kingdom, everything will not fall to total and utter destruction. We don't have to be doomsday people in this world. We also see the power of his reign is what gives us hope. As we proclaim Christ's kingdom, we do so in hope of his eternal reign. He talks about the coming uh, of, of the Son of Man. He uses this language from Daniel. Later this spring, we're going to preach through the book of Daniel. I'm very excited for that. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What's up with that? He's using all this language from, the create, from Genesis 1. It seems like creation's going to undo itself. But part of what the sun, the moon, and the stars symbolized in Genesis 1 is the powers of the world, the kings and kingdoms of the nations. And so he's saying creation's going to seem like it's falling apart, but also the rulers of today are going to come crashing down. He says that the return of the Son of Man will not be hidden or private. You won't have to guess if it happened or not. It's going to be like lightning in the sky. Everyone will be able to see it. And the return and the reign of Christ will mean judgment for the powers of this world. Go read Isaiah 13 or Isaiah 34 or Ezekiel 32 or Amos chapter 8 verse 9. God promises coming judgment for the rulers of this world who do not turn to Christ. But the fall of this current power structure means that another is going to take its place, the Son of Man. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, and that's clearly referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is the hope of our endurance. We are enduring a painful time, a purifying time, James and Paul tells us in Romans 5 and Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. It's a purifying and a painful time, but we are not left without hope. We can endure this time in hope that Christ will return and receive a dominion that will never end. Now the point is not when and how many days and does this particular war in the land of Israel mean that it's time or did that particular war mean that it's time or is there another one that's coming that means that it's time or is there still a stone on the foundation of the temple that has yet to fall over and is that why these things haven't happened yet? None of that is the point. The point is between Christ's first and second coming, it will be painful and purifying, but we can have hope. Now, here's the beauty of that. We don't have to try to deny how painful this world is. That's, that's surely a temptation, right? This world is going to hell in a handbasket, I'll tell you what. I can't believe how much worse things are now. I wish we could go back to the good old days. The good old days. When were those? When people of a certain skin color couldn't vote? Or people could own other people as possessions. 
describe to me the good old days when the average life expectancy was like half of what it is now because so many people died in childbirth? Describe to me the good old days because I look back and I don't see it when a third of the global population was marked out by a plague and we think COVID was bad. Describe to me the good old days because I don't see it in this country or any country around the world. We want to act like there was a time in our history that was the good old days. That was the days we, we wish we could go back to. And I could go get a Coke for 25 cents or I could go trust my kids to go walk out on the street. Friends, there's been evil forever and there will be evil forever until Christ returns. We don't have to deny that. We don't have to act like there were good old days. There weren't. There are days maybe you or our grandparents or our great-grandparents were more familiar with and learned to live in. There's never been good old days. We can be honest about how hard this world is. We don't have to lie to ourselves, right? We don't have to protect ourselves from the evils of this world. We can look them in the face and say, yeah, this world is broken. This world is painful. Our kids say, like I'm sure your kids have said, that's not fair. One of the greatest things we can do to teach them is to tell them, yeah, I know. And it won't be. There's gonna be so many things that happen that aren't fair. Because this is a broken messed up world we live in. But we also, we don't have to lie to ourselves about that, but we also don't have to come to the other side and just become totally depressed and overcome by how evil it is and that we have no hope. We are hopeless. Now, people in history that have tried to be atheistic often want to keep morality and ethics and hope even though they give up God but there have been a few atheists over the years that have become consistent. And they've realized, wait a minute, if I don't believe in God, I have to throw out all the God stuff too. I can't try to hold on to morality because if there's no transcendent being, then there's nowhere we get morality. And wait, if there's no God and there's no afterlife, then death's the end. These seem to be, without God, two options. Either we hold on to, no, there, there's some good old days that we still have hope for, and, and we can try to protect ourselves. I know there's evil out there, but, but let's try to go build something that's, that, where that evil's not penetrated it again. Let's get into that. Or we come over to this side and we say, there's no hope. Everything's gonna be destroyed. Death is the end, and that's all. But because of Jesus, we don't have to settle for those two options. We can look evil square in the face and we can call it for what it is. A malicious twisting of God's good creation. Something that is wrong and hurtful and painful. Something that each one of us here today bear the marks of in your life. Personally, you've suffered. You've lost people. You've been in pain. You've been sick. You've watched other people you love be in pain. You've had trials, you've had suffering in your life. You've experienced hard, wrong things. And we look at Matthew 24 and we see Jesus say that the Son of Man will come on the clouds in heaven. And what will he do? He will make all things right again. We see him talk about angels and trumpets in this passage. In the Old Testament, that was a way that would signal, uh, that, that language was often used when talking about calling the exiles home. 
the trumpet would blow and the exiles would return to God in the land. And Jesus picks up on that language here to say, it's going to be time to come home. It's going to be time to come home when I come back. He talks about the four winds, the four points of a compass, north, south, east, and west. This is all the earth and how the angels will go and get the followers of Jesus from every corner of the world. We, friends, can have hope in the midst of such a broken and painful world. And our hope is that Jesus will return, and that hope fuels our endurance today. Now, the passage began with a question from the disciples about when and what's the sign. In Acts 1, they say, is this it? Is this the time? You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus goes on to describe how we are to wait. He's careful to say throughout this passage that these signs don't mean the end is here yet. And at one point, he flips the switch and begins to describe what it will be like when he does return. And he's kind of, we're left to wonder, wait a minute, what? What, what makes that happen? How are we going to? And he says, it will be obvious. You don't have to try to guess. You don't have to try to predict. And he even says, for good measure, in verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour. Some people have taken that and twisted it and say, well, we can probably figure out the month and the year, but maybe not the day and the hour. And that's just as foolish. The point is, we don't know when but we can constantly be hopeful. He's inviting us to pay attention to what's happening around us. Don't be led astray. Don't be fooled by these false messiahs, these false saviors that come in and proclaim something I've not proclaimed. Don't be fooled by people that say, well, actually in a couple years, this, this, and this, and let me point to you what's happening in Israel right now, and this, this, and this is why, well, friends, there's been war and violence on that part of the world for thousands of years. Don't be fooled, but instead, wait in hope. Endure in hope. The end of this age and the return of Christ is not meant to be predicted and calculated. It's meant to be anticipated as our greatest hope. Because a gospel without the final return of Christ is cut off at the knees. In the fall, we preach through the Apostles' Creed and this is our statement of faith as a church family. And it says in there, from there, talking about the right hand of the Father, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Why is Christ's return mentioned? So often when we think about sharing the gospel, maybe we talk about Jesus loves you. Maybe we go a step further and say Jesus loves you, and so he died for you. Maybe we go a step further and say he died and was resurrected. He defeated death. Maybe we go one step further and talk about he was resurrected and he ascended to Heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God and he's ruling and reigning over all things. Very rarely do we take the last step and say, and he will come again. But if that's not included in our gospel, we have a gospel that's cut off at the knees and actually hopeless. Because his return is our hope for wrongs to be put right. His return is our hope for evil to be overcome once and for all. Christ's return is our hope for pain to be healed. Christ's return is our hope for love to last forever. And if we don't have a hope that he's going to return, we are, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of all people to be pitied. We have hope in this life only. We don't have hope for the next life. 
So how is it that we're supposed to live in light of Christ's return? Hopefully enduring this painful age. Just as the first disciples placed their faith in his future resurrection, I mean, you think what we believe is crazy, which it is a little bit. We're believing there's a man who lived 2,000 years ago, was crucified in one of the most gruesome means of execution in human history, and he came back to life. And now he's in heaven. And you say, where is that? It's like, not here. That's okay to say that's a little wild. That's crazy for us now, but think about these first disciples. There was a man they stood next to, and we say, if I could see Jesus, it would be so much easier. Oh, no, it wouldn't. Because that man would look you in the eyes and say, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back. And you would say, let's admit you to the mental hospital. That's what we do with people who claim to be messiahs today. They place their hope in a future death and resurrection. We place our hope in a past death and resurrection. But we, along with the first disciples, all place our hope in a future return of Christ. We live by faith in his future coming to set the world to rights. Paul says in Titus chapter two, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness, godlessness and worldly lusts, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we live in the end days? We don't stockpile green bean cans in our basement, although you might do that, and that's perfectly okay. But that's not your ultimate hope. You might go buy a property off-grid so that in case everything goes up in flames, you have a place where you can go. That's fine, but that is not your ultimate hope. You might diversify your financial investments so that it's not all wrapped up in the American dollar. That's fine, but that's not your ultimate hope. We're waiting for our ultimate hope to come again. Jesus Christ will return. And our waiting is not just passive. As we wait in hope, we wait with perseverance, with endurance, with courage to stand in the face of evil, with boldness to proclaim the gospel, which he has promised us worldwide success in. We wait expectantly. Like Titus 2 says, putting away godlessness, being trained to live in the way of grace. That's what Anne's been writing about uh, on the blog, living with God, being formed and shaped in a way that we are becoming more and more like Christ in this world. Our waiting is active. Paul says in Colossians 3, you've died, your life is hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So we live in this life with our eyes on him, longing for his return, praying like at the end of Revelation, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray.